1: Visit
2: voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns,
0: opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, the gotta let it go. So Fast
1: welcome back to open the voice gate rewind and rewatch episode 37 Covering Freedom Fight 2012 from the NYWC Sportatorium in Deer Park, New York on November 4th, 2012. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. If you would like to donate to the show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our Red Circle website. You click the red boxes, donate and you can set up a one-time or reoccurring donation, and a no obligation whatsoever, but we'd like to thank all of our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined as always by my friend and co-host, K. Slow and Case. After the slog of 2011, where they had more shows than ever, we just zoomed through 2012. It just feels like it was like last month when we were talking about Open the Golden Gate.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. It It's such a long, I think, Like dramatic in and noteworthy year in the history of professional wrestling. I mean, the notes we have today are are pretty deep and thorough on the situation, most of it regarding the U.S. indie scene at the time. There's so much happening, but with the the unification of Dragon Gate USA and Evolve, Gabe found himself in a position where he could run as many shows as he wanted to, But he also didn't have to fly over Yamato, Shima, Masaki Mochizuki, whoever else, six times a year. It was, you know, what, Golden Gate in January, the Miami triple shot, the Midwest double shot, and then this triple shot at the end of the year. So you're looking at four rounds of shows for Dragon Gate USA this year, and, you know, it's a long, uh, I guess rather a quick journey compared to 2011 when you had six different triple shots. Uh, 2012, like you said, it flew by.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be the same thing in 2013. They have the exact amount, same amount of shows. They have nine shows. It's across four triple shots or three double shots at one triple shot. So we will be getting through that pretty quickly. And then, of course, 2014 has only four shows. And, yeah, no, this is like a year that it's very interesting going through all these show notes and going through all the, going through all the research and seeing, like, how drastic the rest of the wrestling world changed during this time. And DGUSA is still kind of trucking but slowly... I don't want to say slowly dying because that sounds very, very, uh, dark, but I mean, it, it's in its descent and it's pretty clear here when other things are ascendant and especially when like getting into the uh, stuff that's going on, going around the Indies in this back quarter of the year kay? so I think that it really kind of puts a lot of things in perspective and shows you where DGUSA is, where their one-time competitors were and who's ascendant and then big changes happening all across the world of wrestling.
2: Yeah, so let's get into it. We're going to talk about the U.S. Indies for a lot of today, and then a New Japan note and a DDT note. At the end of the show, we will close out the WWN Universe with results from Evolve 18. And next week, we will give our top 10 matches of 2012, so you have that to look forward to. But, Mike, we start with one of the most noteworthy and newsworthy things of 2012. This will be from the August 1st F4W edition edition And I will read this as slowly as I can because I know I have a habit to talk fast, but there is so much information here I want to make sure people understand it clearly. So I will read from F4W. Davy Richards was the center of controversy this week after clips appeared online of a high spot shoot video where he had very negative things to say about Ring of Honor, including calling Booker Jim Cornette out of touch. From talking to people within the company, there are many different opinions. One person defended him to a point saying nobody should judge the DVD without seeing the entire thing, since Highspots is very good at editing together trailers that make shoot DVDs appear far more controversial than it ends up being. But, the person noted, significantly more people will see the trailer, where in clips he buried the company, than the final finished product, whatever the contents of that may be. A lot of what he said in the trailer was stuff that he'd said before, and the trailer didn't include any explanation, if there was one, with what he took issue with regarding Cornette. Another person said there wasn't anything in the ROH contracts that prevented anyone from doing shoot interviews, but he was surprised that Richards and others didn't use better judgment when appearing in them, particularly since they're not very high-paying. It was noted that regarding the morale in ROH, it really depends on who you are. It's not a black and white issue in the sense that there are definitely people who agree with the sentiment that Cornette's booking is outdated, and others uh, who think that this statement is ridiculous, and that Cornette has always booked effectively for whatever era or part of the country that he's been booking for. Those who are disgruntled are upset at the power structure at the top, feeling those in charge, and this isn't just Cornette, but those in Sinclair whose job it is to oversee operations, don't understand wrestling and that the biggest issue remains the promises that Sinclair made at the beginning that they felt haven't been followed up on. One person who was more positive about how things were going noted that a pro wrestling company where everybody is happy simply doesn't exist. Regarding the video, this person noted that yes, Davey had said many of these things before, but he also had a tendency to change perspective on things at the drop of a dime. So Mike will pause here because I, I think It's been lost due to time, and for as much controversy and headache as Ring of Honor might have now in the modern day, it is nothing like the summer of 2012 when it was routine for wrestlers and their company, whether it be Roderick Strong, Kevin Steen, or Davey Richards, or Steve Carino, or Jimmy Jacobs, to publicly bury Ring of Honor in high spot shoot interviews, and Davey Richards did just that, in the shoot interview titled, The Man Behind the Hunt, Davey Richards.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, the people who would do these interviews, versus the company people, and if you look at, the people who wouldn't do it a lot of those company people are still within ring of honor so maybe that tells you a whole lot but it, it, it's something that 2012 as we've been like, talking through it it's something that i i don't think it's like the biggest creative lull that they've had but it definitely was something where you could see it and that jim Cornette was not working as the booker of this thing it seemed like his read of this was pretty off and it was something that what may have worked as being an ovw booker back when ovw what while he had ownership of ovw was not paying off really with uh ring of honor and you know i mean it's something where i mean davy had himself a summer and for good reason where there are a lot of people who just kind of were just like their their hankles i guess is the word or like just like their ire was raised by Davy, just being Davy, and if and if there's one been one common thread in this series case, it is at all times Davy Richards will be Davy Richards.
2: That is certainly one way of saying it. The man behind the hunt, shoot, interview teaser that is referenced in that F4W piece is still on YouTube. It's like a minute fifteen seconds long, and every second of it is absolutely hilarious. So I would recommend watching that. I think we referenced it when we talked about Davey's departure in early 2010, so it's nice to see that come full circle. I I will say, 2012 Ring of Honor, with the exception of maybe some of the lulls in 2018 and 2019, it's the worst the company ever was. Now, we'll talk about a few cards in just a minute, that, you know, one in particular is, is probably my favorite show of the Sinclair era, top to bottom, but the house shows at this point are dire. I mean, there's some really rough stuff what Cornette always had that it's funny, I actually think Ring of Honor in the current day has failed to do this. Cornette could book a main event that people were intrigued by and he could he could book a main event that felt big and monumental to some aspect, but at just these cards, I that 2012 is a really rough time. It's it's a company that feels like it's dying, that has really poor aesthetic choices, like 2012 Ring of Honor looks ugly, from the in-ring presentation to the graphics, it's just, we're a year into Sinclair at this point, and I would be very annoyed if I was working for Ring of Honor, because you hear this big television corporation is coming in to take over, and then you look at what their TV looks like at the time, I, I would be annoyed.
1: And it's something that, like, when we're talking about the production and about this, it would take basically up until the Bullet Club boom for them to put any money into production. Like, to the extent of actually having a light rig versus using tresses and trees, it's something that it it was such, like, a sticking point in their production style. And the TV was just something that, as we talked about when it happened, they bought this company because they knew that they could get Cheap, easy things to draw eyeballs to their advertisers to fill up their affiliates, and it was really up until the uh, the advent of uh, Bullet Club and how the new Japan relationship kind of formed and propelled it, in the uh, later 2010s that that Sinclair ever saw that this was something worth investing money to. So it, it, it's something that, like, I I feel like the smaller things just keep on. Uh, having issues but the bigger problem here is something that as we go through the notes for this week will get sussed out pretty quick but I think we should there's more stuff with Davey that I think is worth getting into because Mr. Richards had himself a fall and winter of 2012
2: I will continue reading from that same F4W piece and they say but that's not all Nathan Blogdit of Magnum Pro in Council Bluffs, Iowa, wrote to us about an incident at a three-day series of shows this weekend. According to Blogdit, he had contacted Davey Richards, Kyle O'Reilly, and Tony Kazina, a.k.a. Team Ambition, to work a series of shows over the July 29th weekend. Blogdit said that all three showed up on time Friday, and Davey and his crew are notoriously late for many events, and were very professional and cordial with everyone. Saturday, a training seminar was scheduled to help offset some of the cost of bringing them in. All three were 30 minutes late, but texted the promoter to let them know, and nobody was bothered. Davey gave the students a lot of great advice, it said, but then began to bury many of the top stars to these up-and-coming kids. I'm sure it happens in all aspects of wrestling at times, it said, but what irked me is that he was taking time that these guys paid to learn to basically have his own little shoot interview." In the course of all of this, I overheard Davey tell the kids in the camp that it would be best for all of them to go, it would be best for them to go all places and work for free just to get beat up and learn. Understandable in the sense of young guys just looking to branch out and get experience. However, in the exact same statement, Davy states, I don't work hard on these small indie shows like this, only to notice I was standing in earshot and heard every word. Immediate eye contact was made, and Davy fumbled around to save it by saying, except for tonight. This should have been a sign that things were not going to go correctly. That night at the show, Davey and the crew sat out by the sound table and openly criticized the show, the venue, and the talent very negatively with an earshot of all the fans. Later, a match with Kazina and Ryan Kidd, who is a 16-year-old, went awry. Nobody is saying exactly what happened, but Kazina told people that Kid had disrespected him, and now it was time to teach him a lesson. Cozina proceeded to take liberties and stretch and shoot on a 16-year-old kid just looking to get work with someone who could teach him some stuff about wrestling, legit choking a minor on a couple of occasions, as well as very dangerously performing wrestling maneuvers that could have had a very negative impact on kids' health and well-being. While all of this was going on, Davy Richards and Kyle O'Reilly stood in the backstage area and shouted respect numerous times, very vocally and very obnoxiously, to get their air quotes gimmick over or to just disrespect everything that was taking place. A YouTube video shows the two having what appears to be a combination pro wrestling match and a light no-gi grappling match. Kozina applied a triangle at the end and Kid allegedly went unconscious. It does not really look like what one would consider to be a shoot in any typical pro wrestling sense, though it is definitely not a worked encounter from start to finish. So let's pause there, Mike.
1: <laughs> yes. We are the, the, off there's to a an lot to incredible get into. start.
2: Yes. I, you have the floor uh, two days with Davey Richards. I, this is what it's like.
1: Well, I, I tried to go and see who these, some of the people who are on this show, uh, Magnum pro were only covered on cage match starting in 2013. So I don't have that card, but Ryan kid is a name that is, has an interesting kind of history, especially like an interesting, somewhat of a link. Uh, Outside of this case, are you familiar with Ryan Kidd? Is this the only time that you've heard of Ryan Kidd?
2: I know he at least was working up through last year because I know Lee Morardi wrestled him at one point, but I am not super well-versed in his catalog of work.
1: So I'm trying to pull up the exact time. Uh, Ryan Kidd uh, did, did some training in Dragon Gate. He was in Kobe for a while like after this i like, completely
2: like, forgot about that but you're right
1: yeah yeah it was the same time do you remember like the hurricane Ram- ramirez that came through or the Cyclone? R- yes. Uh, oh, oh, yes yes i do yes yeah yeah he was in the dojo at the same time so this is one of the things that i know i've talked about on, on previous shows like people come and will just pay to train and he paid to train so yeah uh it's something that was very much uh, the the whole him burying all the other works and saying go get beat up by free I mean that's a certain mindset within people within wrestling that I think is uh, counterintuitive in a lot of ways and because that's just then if you say you work for free then you're already going to have promoters that think you'll just wrestle for free even if you're not training you know like it's something that like at the very least there should be some compensation in my opinion if not like you know full compensation but it's and, and then you get into like the Tony Kazina match and have you seen this match because I watched some of this like back when it happened and yeah I mean Tony, Tony Kazina who at this time was I believe 40 uh, yeah he was uh, 42 at this time beating up a 16 year old like there's another way of putting it he beat up a 16 year old for like this and then choked him out it was just one of those more kind of Insane things to like watch and see happen or like who does this and then you look at like who he's trained I mean he's someone who's trained by Billy Jack Haynes and Matt Bourne so like he's someone that like came through a certain system in a way but doing that to a 16 year old kid and it's something that I think in a lot of ways has kind of followed him for the remainder of his career and I think that's one of the reasons why other than his age that Tony Kazina now just trains and I don't know if he's doing anything after leaving the folly dojo but he was one of the trainers there because that was kind of the work and wrestling this guy could get did you ever see this uh shoot fight
2: no i looked for it on youtube today and it was not there i know it's available on smart mark video but i have not made the purchase yet
1: yeah i don't blame you but yeah it's just one of those things that i mean this happening like back to back with davy and then even more so the thing happening on sunday just kind of just went insane it's one of the more insane things that i believe that really kind of like lost to this and i think that like newer fans might not have heard of what you're about to read here but it's one of the more like cavalier and insane things that have happened and it's one of the reasons why davy at this point really has like a deserved reputation
2: so let's get into Sunday when blogged it said that it all came to a head. He said I informed the guys via text uh, the address of the show that, and that doors open at 3:30 p.m. and he sent that text at 9:16 a.m., giving the guys plenty of time to be where they were supposed to be for the day. At 1:54 p.m., I began to get text messages from Tony asking if the card could be changed to put all of them against four guys from APW so that they could lighten the workload. Apparently, Tony had dinged up his foot and Kyle had tweaked his back. As I was relaying info to the promoter, the promoter said he would be all right doing this, but since he didn't get what was agreed upon, he would appreciate it if they lowered the rate. Shortly after I replied to Tony, he said we'll talk when we get there, and that was a little after 2 p.m. Between this time and the next time I got a text from Tony at 3:46 p.m., Tony begins texting with the promoter from Davy's phone. I was privy to all that was happening, uh, all that was being said, and the promoter went back and forth with Tony for over an hour and a half, numerous times saying that they were only 20 minutes away and things of that nature. First, Tony agreed to the original plan, then changed it again and said, "No, we are going to do this," and things of that nature. The promoter tried coming up with many different ways to appeal to both the the guys and make it feasible for him since he was not getting what he agreed upon. It was time for doors to open and the guys still weren't there. The APW promoter had a tough choice to make and he told them that they were no longer needed on the show and that they could just go home after being told that as doors were opening that they were 45 minutes away. Tony got in touch with me and stated that the promoter was trying to pull a fast one on them. I was obviously aware of the situation and stated that it was out of my hands and that I felt nothing was being pulled and the promoter was justified in his actions. At this point, Davey begins to start contacting me personally. I sent Davy to the promoter because I said again that it was out of my hands. Davy told the promoter numerous times that he is not allowed to cancel them and that he has no choice that they are coming to work and get paid. They showed up four minutes before the main event, which was then pushed forward to give these guys one last opportunity to do something because, quote, Davy couldn't just lose three hundred dollars. Once they arrived, Davy went from being sincere to being pushing and violent in a matter of moments. Once I started hearing threats against the APW promoter, I walked outside to step in. There is no reason for four men to threaten a one hundred fifteen pound promoter who was only looking out for his company. After the threat of violence and the statements from Davey saying that if he called Jim Cornette, that Jim would condone all of Davey's actions, including beating someone up literally half his size, I helped defuse the situation and came to an agreement for a very, very last minute match. As the boys came in and suited up, just Kyle and Davey, they all chatted amongst themselves while doing so. It did not register with me quickly what was about to take place. Tony was slowly carrying their bags to the vehicle in which the student was already at. We chatted with Davey really quick about the match details and figured out a finish. Everything seemed cool. As the first guy went to the ring, I heard a little ruckus, and as my music began playing, I turned around to see Kyle O'Reilly sprinting out the back door. The promoter had agreed to give them their money up front as a sign of good faith and that everything was cool and this new match would go on as planned. Obviously, there was a reason that Davy Richards demanded the money up front. After all was said and done, the boys from Team Ambition have been making light and poking fun at the fact that they robbed the same people who work in the same business that they do. They cheated the fans, no matter how many were in the crowd. Mike Spears, my goodness
1: welcome to the era of the wheelman. <laughs> this is one of the the most like and i'll say this much one of the most carny things to have happened in, the, in like the last while and it's just so nuts to like, like the way that like it, it, as reading this like, like at what point if you were the promoter were like oh something's not on the level i should just say just stick with it. we don't need you anymore we're good or you do your agreed upon matches like when they like were constantly saying they're twenty minutes away, and it's clear it was a stalling tactic. When they showed up, when they say oh, Davey couldn't just leave three hundred, lose three hundred dollars. Like there were so many things that that they were going to pull this thing, and I forget who like the student was at this time because Team Ambition were the three of them: o- O'Reilly, Cozina, and Richards. And like a student that I think completely has like drifted out of history. But what a wild story! And the introduction of why Tony Cozina has forever been called the wheelman ever since.
2: The student was Jeremy Hall. Does that... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was the booker for APW. I hate to throw him under the bus. My apologies to Jeremy Hall. I was reading the wrong name in APW Ponderings article. Uh, Yes, Tony Cozina is forever the wheelman. I don't know what my favorite part of this is. Davey Richards threatening to beat up a promoter or Davy Richards justifying it by saying that Jim Cornette would be okay with it. It, the The thing that should be contextualized is that it, the reason that he fought, the promoter fought to get Davy Richards on the show and to kind of bend over backwards for him, with the exception of Kevin Steen and El Generico, Davy Richards is the biggest star in the Indies at this point. That is why this was once such a big deal, but two. Why the promoter was so forgiving and willing to give in to Davey because having Davey Richards on your show, I mean, Davey has never been Chris Hero, who will work whatever show for whatever audience and will try his hardest. Davey has always been a little bit more selective with his bookings. He doesn't do a lot of jobs. and And for Davey to, you know... Come to this promotion in Iowa, it was going to result in some more DVD or MP4 buys from Smartmark at the time. So it meant something to the business to have Davy Richards on your show. And then we end up with the great Iowa heist. I should also note that uh, Kyle O'Reilly posted a blog the Monday afterward and essentially said, yeah, what the promoter said was true. Did we threaten his life? No. But his story is is pretty accurate. And from there, you know, Ring of Honor booking at the time had just split up Davey and Kyle. It was now transitioning into Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish after Bobby Fish left Evolve. So we start seeing the the kayfabe breakup of Kyle O'Reilly and Davey Richards, but in a very real sense, uh, Kyle, smartly, because I think Kyle is, by all accounts, one of the nicest people in the industry, and I think he's one of the most talented people in the industry, and I hate that he works where he does because now I just never watch him. But he made a career decision to distance himself from Davey Richards after this. I think the only place they consistently worked together after this incident was AAW, where they still teamed on a pretty regular basis through the end of, of Davey working there. But yeah, that is the great Iowa heist. That is why if you ever hear the flagship uh, Rich Creation Joe Lanza talk about Tony Cozina, he is always the wheelman Tony Cozina. And it comes from the great Iowa heist, a, an episode of, of Dark Side of the Ring that I hope is made one day.
1: Oh gosh, I'm just imagining, just like Davey Richards at this point, looking insane in five years, just uh, talking about this. i like no memory of it whatsoever, and then, and then very straight-laced Kyle Riley, like, yeah, no, I was young in the business, and this happened, and like this happened, and then Tony Kazina, wherever he is, have to sit down and talk to it, and then Nathan Bloggett, who uh, I believe he he, I'm not gonna say whose gimmick is because I don't think that is a thing, but like he was a known wrestler at that time in the Midwest, but yeah, no, it's something that the indies were in such a state in 2012 that even though we've talked about how Ring of Honor have been having these issues and talking about Dragon Gate USA having these issues, it was an overall lull in the whole entire industry that happened when, when that most recent class of people all went to WWE, NXT starting up, and just, in a way, tapping out the indies in a way that would happen a lot back then, but it was slowly repopulating and that we don't really have in 2019, 2020. So it made sense with all this but yeah no Kyle O'Reilly because I feel like almost like soon after this Kyle also moved out of St. Louis where they all were based in because I know like that was one of the reasons why team ambition was things that they were all based around St. Louis so it really was something that then since then like I don't think there really has been much of any Kyle O'Reilly and Davey Richards interactions I think
2: No, they they wrestle on a PWG show against one another in 2013, and I think that's the last one-on-one they had. I mean, Ring of Honor worked a program, you know, Red Dragon vs. American Wolves, for most of 2013 until Davey finally exits the company, but it is very clear that Kyle made a personal decision to say, hey... Maybe not this guy, uh, after this, but but Mike, that's not all the Davy Richards news we have. October twenty-third wrestling observer newsletter. There was an issue with Davey Richards and Future Shock Wrestling in England. When Richards did his tour of the UK a few months back, he wrestled for the uh, wrestled for the promotion against his champion, Jack Gallagher. During the match, there was an accident and Gallagher ended up being knocked out. Richards, to save the match, had no real choice but to pin Gallagher and win the championship. It wasn't what they wanted to do, but it was understood that it was the only real option at the moment. Richards agreed to come back and drop the title, Their owner, Dave Pownall, claimed Richards pulled out two days before the planned rematch, saying that he wasn't going to get on the plane for anything less than twice the agreed fee. Between that and the cost of flying him in, they said they couldn't afford it, They asked, since the booking had fallen apart, if Richards could at least send in a video. Richards sent a a video via email 20 minutes after the show started. They had to get internet access to download it and edit it, and with the exception of the guy doing the editing, nobody saw it until it played at the show after the main event ended. The sound and video quality wasn't good, and the video was not the outline of what they had asked him to say, but instead his running down the company. Davey uh, Richards sent an email to Damian Smith, of the promotion on october 5th saying i've told you and dave now that i am not coming over because we could not agree on the price like i said before since i am the champion my price has to go up so my old fee needs to be at least doubled before i come over i had no recollection or maybe even knowledge of this until mike reminded me or i guess you'll let me know about this it just it never ends with davey even now in 2020 it never ends
1: it, it it's something where he is such a uniquely just uh i i mean there, there are certain people that are messy and love drama and there's some people that just drama just happens around them drama happens around him but i'm not entirely convinced that he does not love drama you know like it seems like he lives for it and it's just one of those things that like especially like this was way before like boom era uh uk as well so like flying over davy richards like you were talking about like how he was one of the stars that traveled that was like a serious thing that like you would like put together like a tour of okay you would go here you go here you go here and all these promotions would then chip in for the flight so him pulling this didn't necessarily just like mess over one promotion it messed over a whole lot at once
2: yeah, he worked Fight Club Pro on that tour, too, because we'll actually talk about that show when we talk about the Dragon Gate USA show that we are here to talk about in and a, and a brief aside there. But, yeah, I mean, at the time, 2012 UK Indies, they were flying in Davey, they were flying in Colt Cabana, and those are, like, those are the guys I think of, of, like, foreigners that worked pre-boom UK Indies, is, like, Cabana's all over those early Rev Pro shows. And, you know, again, Davey was the biggest guy in the company at the time, and we talked a little bit earlier about just, you know, the, the woes that Ring of Honor was having. And part of that was, you know, made worse by the fact that Davy Richards, after losing the main event of Best in the World 2012, which I don't remember if we talked about that show or not a few weeks ago, but it was, you know, something notable. Uh, Kevin Steen won the belt from from Davy Richards in May of 2012. They had a rematch in, in June. I don't even know if we, I, I don't think we talked about the Steen versus Davy drama, which is, uh when Sean Cedor and I do our early Sinclair Ring of Honor years re- rewatch podcast we'll talk more <laughs> about it then cuz I know Sean Cedor is the only person uh besides myself that has a ton of opinions on 2014 Ring of Honor booking but that's besides the point but but Davey took time off from Ring of Honor enduring his uh, freeze of appearances. Ring of Honor put on a show at the Frontier Field House, September 15th, 2012, Death Before Dishonor 10. This was an eye pay-per-view that had the finals of the Ring of Honor tag team title tournament that saw scum of Jimmy Jacobs and Steve Carino beat Charlie Haas and Rhett Titus for the vacant titles. These were vacated after Kenny King left Ring of Honor unexpectedly, also on this show, Tadarius Thomas defeated Silas Young in a Survival of the Fittest 2012 qualifying match. Kylo Riley defeated ACH in his ROH debut. Jay Lethal defeated Homicide. Michael Elgin and Roderick Strong defeated Irish Airborne. Adam Cole retained the TV title over Mike Mondo in the main event. Ring of Honor, anything, or Ring of Honor world title match, anything goes. Kevin Steen beats Ring of Honor. This was a bad show on paper, and it was made worse by the fact that Ring of Honor had tremendous eye pay-per-view issues on this show. It's probably a little bit too granular to get into the specifics, but essentially no one could watch the show and no one could watch the show. And then Ring of Honor didn't really communicate anything to the viewers. They, they, Ignored some complaints that the show wasn't working and then insisted to others that the show actually was working and as a result you got a very a good look at the PR skills of Jeff Jones who uh, was just completely inept uh, especially during this time period with all of the iPay-Per-View issues they suffered.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's something that this was really at like a time we talked before about the move to iPay-Per-View with almost all of the US mid major promotions as I will call them. And it Ring of Honor, it took probably actually until like 2014, 2015 for them to actually be consistent in their pay-per-views and their iPay per views. And you know, they really butchered it here. And it's something that going through the notes, I don't always put it in every time, but there's constant things about like, oh yeah, there were complaints about the Ring of Honor or i pay per view. Like this is another thing that Sinclair did not put money in. I think they were still using GoFight Live at that time, and I... I
2: think it was for this show that they went to a Ring of Honor-based streaming platform, and they got away from Go Fight Live, and I think they ran six eye-per-views in 2012, and the first... No, I think they ran... This was the sixth eye-per-view they had run up to this point, and four out of the six it had major streaming issues, because they had issues WrestleMania weekend, they had issues for Border Wars in Toronto. I mean, it was just... It was a disaster, and it killed the business. You know, we talked when Ring of Honor first went on iPayPerView, which I think was Final Battle two thousand nine or two thousand ten. I think two thousand nine. I think it was
1: two thousand nine. Yeah, yeah.
2: And at the time, you know, the buys weren't you know were a little over a thousand, but it was considered a, a relative success. And now you're seeing Ring of Honor iPay-per-views that are trickling in at five hundred buys, and it's just because people did not trust. Not only the platform that they were being streamed on, but also the product. And that is made worse. One, there's a note here that the Young Bucks, who haven't been used hardly at all. Have their contracts expiring at the end of September of 2012 for Ring of Honor and also the November 16th F4W when Jim Cornette stepped down as Booker of Ring of Honor following a meeting in Rahway, New Jersey. This week, he'll be replaced by Delirious, who had been working with him as an assistant and creative and who was, prior to the move to Sinclair, the head Booker of the company. The word from the ROH side is that Cornette chose to step out of the spotlight, but will still be heavily involved with the company in terms of working on the production side, helping with formats, offering ideas, etc. He's not only taking a step back as head booker, but is also being written off of TV. The angle has already been shot and involves Jay Lethal going berserk and accidentally injuring him following a match with Kevin Steen this weekend that got out of control, in quotes. We're just told Cornet we're we're told Cornette takes one hell of a bump in his Swan Song, and that news was rendered useless two weeks later as Cornette quit Ring of Honor after an outburst on November 3rd at the ROH television tapings at the tapings Steve Carino suffered an injury and no ROH officials were still at the venue to be able to pay for Carino's immediate medical attention or even arrange for an ambulance to be called this left Carino in pain for hours and Cornette to be the only person there with enough power to handle the situation and then Cornette would quickly either be uh, resolved of his duties or relieved of his duties rather or quit depending on who you ask but it was the end of a very very stressful and just painful era of ring of honor
1: yeah yeah and it's something that you know it's the start of like when when cornet finally leaves it's the start of seeing the pieces that kind of come together and by 2013 and 2014 you will start seeing ring of honor ascendant like truly ascendant like not like okay they're clearly out ahead of Dragon Gate USA they're ahead of Gabe they're at a position where they can say hey Gabe do you want to come back here no they're at a point at that, at that juncture where it's like why would they so it, it, it's something where like Cornet seems like to be the last domino to fall to kind of start with this and then you know I mean, 2013 things would start getting a little better I mean the, the end of the year strong in 2012 but then by the end of 2013 and then 2014 and then as the relationship with New Japan developed that was the That was one of the big stimuluses to its ascendancy to the point where it was a number two promotion in America for at least 2018, 2019.
2: The good news is that on October 13th, 2012 from Ontario, Canada, Ring of Honor put on Glory by Honor 2012. A card that featured the CNT Wrestle Factory beating the Bravado Brothers, Mike Bennett defeating Mike Mondo, the world's greatest tag team defeating BJ Whitmer and Rhett Titus, Jay Lethal defeating Davey Richards, Tedarius Thomas defeating Rhino. That is a very 2012 match. TD Thomas over Rhino. ROH television title: Adam Cole defeats Eddie Edwards. The tag team belts were defended by Carino and Jacobs as they win over the Briscoe Brothers. And in the main event, 31 minutes and 30 seconds, Kevin Steen defeats Michael Elgin to retain the Ring of Honor. World title. After the match, Roderick Strong turns on Michael Elgin, lays him out, and then Nigel McGinnis delivers a box to the ring. Kevin Steen opens the box and finds El Generico's mask inside. I said earlier this is my f- one of my favorite shows of the Sinclair era of Ring of Honor. It's not their strongest show top to bottom, but it was a show that, one, had no eye-pay-per-view issues, two, that Jay Lethal versus David Richards match, at least in mid-2010 eyes was incredible, and I say to this day, the best match in Ring of Honor Sinclair era history is Kevin Steen versus Michael Elgin on this show, four and three quarters from me, I adore that match, and it's it's a real high point, this was a much needed uh, step in the right direction for Ring of Honor at the time
1: yeah yeah and it, you start seeing people like Elgin get the step forward i mean the the Davy versus Jay lethal I mean that was one of the major like matches that kind of like started Jay Lethal's rise, and it started to feel at least like here that delirious got together a coherent promotion where there was a lot of just discordant things like Rhino is still around here, but Rhino won't be around in Ring of Honor for a whole long lot longer, but you started to see like a promotion that was kind of getting their act together in a lot of ways. And I mean, that kind of continued through the end of 2012 for them.
2: We will quickly ran out ring of honor here. Final battle 2012 from the Hammerstein ballroom. This is another show that appears by the notes to have no eye pay-per-view issues. I remember watching this show live. This was my first ring of honor. eye pay-per-view I remember being really, really excited for this show and then just thinking it was okay. As we go down the card, Roderick Strong defeats Michael Elgin in the opener, Jay Jay Lethal defeats Rhino, R.D. Evans defeats Prince Nana in an Embassy Explodes match, New York City Street Fight, the world's greatest tag team defeat B.J. Whitmer and Rhett Titus. This is the show where... BJ Whitmer took a belly to belly from the top rope through a table and went neck first through said table. Mike Bennett defeated Jerry Lynn in his final Ring of Honor match. The American Wolves defeated the Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly Red Dragon team. Non title match, Matt Hardy beat Adam Cole. ROH World Tag Team Sudden Death Rules three way match with the Briscoes winning the belts over the CNC Wrestle Factory and Scum. In the main event, Kevin Steen defeats El Generico in a Ring of Honor ladder war. Not a great final battle, but I do feel like the Steen versus Generico match is really memorable.
1: Yeah, yeah, that it's real memorable, and of course you're starting to see, like, the true formation of Red Dragon. And then it's like, they were teaming, I think, like, what, for like a month before this? Yeah, they they, they had pretty
2: pretty newly formed at that point.
1: Right, so I mean, again, like, they're getting, like, their pieces together. That we will really see in 2013 and into 2014, that things would just start to really take off for them. And I, mean, I remember, like, that ladder war, like, that was... Like, considering the time and considering, like, the the shape of Kevin Steen at that time, like, for a guy of his size, Steen was doing some crazy stuff and taking some insane bumps during that latter war.
2: Yeah, Steen's Ring of Honor World title run. I mean, he really put all of his effort into it, and it's really just... You can tell Cornette doesn't really know what to do with Kevin Steen, which I don't know how that's possible, but he didn't, and I think the quality of the stories that Steen was involved with were lacking during his world title run, but the match quality for the most part was pretty high and ladder war was a peak, uh, one of the peaks in that world title run. Yeah. Uh, As for the other us indies, it's not all bad. I quickly want to talk about PWG because this is to me, this is the golden era of PWG. This is, I, I think other than Chikara, they're the hottest thing on the indies at the time. But it's pre-PWG boom, and by the time PWG really blows up, I'm already uh, waning interest a little bit. It is 2012 and 2013 that I really love, and we're going to talk about the Battle of Los Angeles and failure to communicate real quick, 2012 BOLA. Saw the opening round matches of TJP defeating Joey Ryan, Sammy Callahan defeating Willie Mack, Roderick Strong defeating Drake Younger, Ricochet beating Kevin Steen, Michael Elgin beating Davey Richards in a rematch from the Ring of Honor Miami show, Eddie Edwards defeating Kyle O'Reilly, Brian Cage defeating B-Boy, and in the main event, Adam Cole defeats El Generico that leads the night 2 where Sammy Callahan defeated TJP, Ricochet defeated Roderick Strong, Michael Elgin defeated Brian Cage and Adam Cole defeated Eddie Edwards in the quarterfinals. In the semis Michael Elgin went over on Ricochet and Adam Cole went over on career long rival Sammy Callahan. There was a six-man tag with El Generico, Kevin Steen, and Rick Knox defeating the Young Bucks and Brian Cage. That match is super fun. And the main event, Adam Cole wins the Battle of Los Angeles by defeating Michael Elgin. This is the true... Rocket Pack ascent of Adam Cole. He had been working PWG and Future Shock as a babyface tag team with Kyle O'Reilly, and this is the weekend where he starts doing the suck my dick chant, he turns heel, he defeats El Generico in a crazy 11-minute sprint. They threw everything they had out there, and it was such a quick and impactful match. And then Cole ends up winning the entire tournament, and from there, a lot of his career has been defined by the success he had in PWG.
1: Right. And it's something that, even as a CZW prod, uh, prospect, and we've talked about him as that, like PWG was the thing that let him kind of show more personality in a lot of ways, other than like his, his partnership with Mia M and just like letting him kind of like tap into that. And this was also at the time where the Young Bucks were huge heels at the time and were beating up Brick Knox nonstop. And that's something that they've kind of somewhat revisited a little bit in AEW, especially in AEW shoulder content there relationship with rick knox and it's just something that like you look at this and there are some locals still on these shows but it's getting to the point now where other than willie mac uh b-boy would be pretty much gone soon dj perkins uh joey ryan and a couple others like these are almost all fly-ins at this point like they like when you say like this is them like really like being ppwg it happened a lot earlier than a lot of people realized that they kind of just went all in on this format and it just would get even more so all in on this the further as it goes on.
2: Speaking of Willie Mack, his career took an interesting turn at PWG Failure to Communicate on October 27th, 2012. This show was notable for the fact that Kenny Omega showed up at the last minute and rearranged this entire card. So we ended up getting a show with Ryan Taylor winning in an opening match against Joey Ryan, Michael Elgin defeating Eddie Edwards, the Rocknest Monsters defeating B-Boy and Famous B, Sammy Callahan beat Davey Richards in a match that I know was really divisive at the time. A lot of people digging their heels in one way or another. Roderick strong defeated Rich Swan in his PwG debut dragon at USA's Rich Swan Brian Cage defeated Willie Mack in 18 minutes in a match that supposedly made Super Dragon lose faith in both of them and thus their pushes were immediately halted in pwg and then your final two matches El generico and Kenny Omega defeat the young bucks in a a very Omega style of match I will say there's a lot of shenanigans there But there's a lot of good stuff And then uh, Kevin C won the main event A three-way title defense over Michael Elgin And Ricochet So that is PWG in 2012 Lots of good stuff going on
0: there
1: And, and one of the crazy things about uh, El Generico and Kenny Omega team each other Is that 2009 and Ch- 2008 It was Chuck Taylor and Kenny Omega As the two men of low moral fiber Having it in for El Generico so, like, the the fact that, like, they came forces, came together in forces was kind of like a PWG moment at that time. But, yeah, no, that match, like, 26 minutes. Jesus. Especially in comparison to the rest of the card. <laughs> that, that, that's Kenny for you. That's Kenny for you.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, they do an over-the-top arm wrestling spot in that match, but then it's also... Like, generic old Omega versus the Bucks. There's some stuff that's just mind-blowing there. So that is the U.S. indie scene. Before we talk about at USA, there are uh, a few notable things happening in Japan. I guess real quickly, one of them being August 18th, 2012, in Nippon Budokan Hall, Kenny Omega headlines Budokan Hall losing a, a KOD openweight title match against Kota Ibushi. I think this is probably one of the more infamous wrestling matches of the 2010s. This is the the Moonsault Balcony Dive. This is the Kreutz Wrath off the top rope. That is probably one of the most important matches of the past decade. I think the other notable thing on this show was El Generico defeating uh, Konosuke Takashita in one of the opening matches. But yeah, Mike, I, I wanted to be sure to get that in there, that this was the around the time of Ibushi versus Omega.
1: Yeah, and... Of course, like, it's now pretty much, a, like, lore that this got uh DDT, they they had to show at Budokan Hall and immediately Kodabushi got in a lot of trouble. Like, this was, for DDT at 2012, this was, like, their big step forward, and especially, like, the idea of having the Golden Lovers in the main event, El Generico at that time going against their future ace, and it's just something that it's like, this was, like, their big step forward in a lot of ways, and at least from, like, the way I remember it, like, I think everyone pretty much knows I'm not a DDT person, but... This was like such a notable show at the time that it's like everyone stopped and took notice because you had DDT in 2012, which still really had the vein of being this indie that they completely went to Budokan and they nearly filled the building. There were a lot of uh, comps, if I remember right, but still the fact that they got nearly 12,000 people there is insane.
2: The other notable thing from Japan at the time is the fact that Ring of or I'm sorry, not Ring of Honor, but New Japan Pro Wrestling got into the pay per view business. They started with the August 5th G1 Climax Show from the Osaka Bodymaker Coliseum in Osaka, and that show had Yuji Nagata versus Yuji Hiro Takahashi, MVP versus Roosh, Hiroshi Tenzan versus Lance Archer, Carl Anderson versus Shelton Benjamin, Toru Yano versus Minoru Suzuki, Togi Makabe versus Tetsuya Naito, and uh, Katsuchiko Kata versus Shinsuke Nakamura, and Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Naomichi Marafuji. So. Ring of Honor, or I said Ring of Honor again, New Japan Pro Wrestling, they get into the iPay-Per-View business. Mike, my understanding was this show was only available in Japan. Do you want to talk about the iPay-Per-View rollout of New Japan at the time?
1: Right, yeah, so New Japan at this time, and this was something that I believe that this was purely because of how Bushiro taking over, like, this was not something that Yukes would have done at that time, but it's something that this happened, and then they had over 21,000 buys including late purchases making it 23,000 which was the most purchased i pay view event ever at this time it's just insane it's just one of those things that when they did this like especially with how in japan you consume culture it made a lot of sense for them to really do that and i mean it the i view market was so nascent at this time like WWE did have iPay per views They did offer, like, a direct eye per view thing, but it did, like, less than 10,000 buys over 2011, 2012, and it just was, like, such a big thing. Also, because at this time, like, New Japan was in a terrible TV slot. They had their... They still had, like, their cable shows, but it was something that they were able to do this and make, like, this huge step forward that kind of kicked off everything there, and especially from things that they would announce soon after.
2: Yeah, so we got the announcement of that King of Pro Wrestling on October 8th would be a worldwide i pay-per-view broadcast. This is something that I think we take for granted now. I know I tweeted this a few months ago that it blows my mind that not only can we watch live Japanese wrestling, but on most nights now we have options for what we could watch live from Japan, whether it's Dragon Gate in New Japan, DDT in All Japan. It is insane to me, but in 2012 this was the first time this had ever, ever been available, and New Japan got things kicked off on the right foot with King of Pro Wrestling 2012, the notable stuff on this show, Forever Hooligans retained the IWGP Junior tag belts against the Time Splitters. Loki won the IWGP Junior Heavyweight title from Kota Ibushi, the Killer Elite Squad beat Tin Koji for the IWGP Heavyweight Tag Team titles. Yujihiro Takahashi defeated Tetsuya Naito by referee's decision. Laughter 7, Katsuyori Shibata and Kazushi Sakuraba defeated Togi Makabe and Wataru Inoue. Number 1 contender IWGP heavyweight title match, Kazuchika Okada defeats Karl Anderson. IWGP white belt intercontinental title, Shinsuke Nakamura defeats Hiroki Goto. And the main event, a 5-star match in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Hiroshi Tanahashi defeats Minoru Suzuki.
1: And that match, geez I, it, it's still one of those matches that like for peak New Japan that if you want to talk about the the true start of peak New Japan like of course it's Okada and like the Rainmaker Shock but this show where you had Hiroshi Tanahashi Minoru Suzuki just have like an absolute classic and one that even with like the five star inflation that's happened over the last eight years deserves every bit of the five star thing and case okay, so I do have some numbers to go by so we talked about how so we just talked about like how well of a success it was in Japan for the uh, first show, the G1 Climax. So inside Japan alone, they had over 51,000 buys on iPay-Per-View for this. So it was a massive success, like an incredible success. The, the full number was uh, doing 52,617 for the live airing in Japan, and then getting 616 from the United States and from the rest of the world and a lot of that coming afterwards, after the hype of this match really happening. So it, it's something where it's an incredible amount of revenue that was starting to come in there. So you had like 50. So that if you had like that much money coming in just from Japan, like that completely changes like the scale of things and just completely just shattering everything to that. Ever since then, they've had pay per view ever since, and then they moved to their own their own streaming platform and it completely like like the idea of us like talking about like a thousand buys 800 buys for i-pay-per-views or pay-per-views for dragon gate usa and then new japan comes along and just shows up and if they didn't do this amount this crazy amount of buys within japan when they only drew seven thousand to sumo hall so it was not even a sell-up sumo hall i think we would probably be looking at a completely different landscape as it as it pertains to internet distribution and how we watch wrestling today like this show is that important
2: it's one of the bigger sliding glass doors moments of the past decade if if this doesn't work if new japan i I don't even know what failure would have looked like but if they would have deemed the international eye pay-per-view rollout a failure it completely changes the next decade in wrestling i mean we are looking at an entirely different universe And, uh, it's, it's bizarre to think about, but like I said, now we have options. I mean, we're recording this show and I won't be staying up to watch a live Dragon Gate Cork and Hall show, but I have the option to, in just a few hours. And that, that is something that I I think we probably take for granted a little bit, because it is, it is absolutely insane. But Mike, we have been talking for an hour and we haven't been talking about (laughs) Dragon Gate USA. Uh, Would you like to get into Freedom Fight 2012?
0: New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Yes, let's do so. So, Freedom Fight 2012, as we mentioned at the top, was from the NYWC Sportatorium in Deer Park, New York, on November 4th, 2012. We opened up with Johnny Gargano talking about this being like his one-year mark as champion as he won the title in Freedom Fight 2011, talked about Sandy hitting Deer Park and made kind of like an awkward comparison about him and the victims. It just was something that the heart was there, the wording wasn't necessarily there. And then he talked about the four-way and nothing was going to stop him there. Gargano just not very good at like these just cut a promo into the camera parts of this.
2: You know, I didn't mind this one. My, my biggest complaint here is Johnny Gargano's hair was unacceptable. It was so aggressively 2012- so uncomfortably faux hawk, and I was just not, <laughs> I was not happy. I was really distracted by that, but I, I didn't mind the promo. I I think it's crazy to think, and and granted, we've only been watching the Dragon Gate USA portion of of this rewatch. But he's been champion for a year now, Mike, and in a year, he defended the belt against Masao Yoshino in Dragon Gate USA. We saw that, and then the Akira Tozawa defense in Dragon Gate USA. He defeated or defended the belt. And evolve against Ricochet AR Fox, Chuck Taylor, and then technically John Davis by countout. He had the Rio Saito match in Japan and a Jonathan Gresham match in uh, 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 Fight Club Pro on the same show that Davy Richards worked during that ill-fated UK tour. that was Trent 7 versus Davy Richards and then Gargano versus Jonathan Gresham on that show. So I don't know, I just quickly, a year into Johnny Gargano's world title run, what do you think?
1: I think that he was still was still not a complete product. I agree. I think that he was he was slowly getting there and I think when we turn the page into 2013 we'll see like him really kind of become the ace of the promotion but at this point I don't want to say he's floundering cuz he's having solid matches it just is very clear that they put him in this role and it was not a short game. Like this was something that they would have to, you know, lean on him for a bit and eventually he would get himself to the point where it would get to the point where he would just take off and become the Johnny Gargano that I think a lot of people know.
2: I've been really disappointed in the, him not being a complete product at this point. And I, and I hope that by 2013, things change, because I know there's some stuff I'm looking forward to revisiting. But 2012, a disappointing year for Johnny Gargano and a disappointing end of the year for John Davis.
1: Yeah, that's right. John Davis had a match against Ada He defeated Ada in six minutes, 15 seconds with the Lariat. And I think I liked, from the way you said that case, I think I liked this match a bit more than you did. I thought that other than like Davis's shtick, like this worked as like a prospect versus an established guy.
2: Let me be clear. I thought the in-ring portion of this match was great. I, John Davis working so well with the Dragon Gate talent is not something I necessarily anticipated on rewatch, but he's delivered every single time. Like he, he there's no uh, universe where John Davis is ever working in Japan for Dragon Gate. But as a, as a pillar of the Dragon Gate USA universe, he has really delivered against the, the foreign talent. And I thought he did the same thing here against Ata. My issue is the John Davis staring gimmick, and and I I had the show on DVD, I've watched this show many, many times before, to have a hot crowd, a, a relatively for, you know, during the USA in 2012, a really hot crowd in Deer Park, New York, to start the show with John Davis staring down a fan for minute after minute after minute after minute. I thought he killed this crowd before he ever stepped in the ring. And that's not necessarily John Davis's fault. It's the fault of the character that he was portraying. But I hate the fact that he began this show and sucked the life out of a crowd that just wanted to sit down and watch wrestling.
1: Yeah, and you could tell that that also Ada was tired of it. Like, Ada came out there, and he got bored. He, like, he, like motioned to, like, his wrist as if he was, like pointing to a watch he started sitting on the top rope it was very ada in a way that I was like yep no ada's not here for this either and it's something that it completely like kind of turned the crowd off like it was something that someone in the crowd had their iphone their, their 2012 iphone up and had a stopwatch going and i peered over and i tried to look into it i, I should have done a full case and zoomed in and see what it was but it was at least two minutes of him staring at the crowd
2: it's just, I, I don't know what this accomplishes other than go-away heat. Like, I just don't right. know what the what the ideal scenario for John Davis staring at a fan is. What is the crowd supposed to get out of this? I just don't know. If you ask Gabe when he was coming up with this idea, or I'm, I'm assuming Gabe came up with it, maybe I'm you know mislabeling him here, but what's the best case scenario that happens when John Davis stares at a guy? 'Cause I just don't know what the answer is, and it's it's frustrating because I, I really liked this opener. Ata was awesome, his chops got over, he did a moonsault to the floor, and then the John Davis finish, where he goes Powerbomb German suplex Lariat, that is a great finishing combination. John Davis's in ring has not suffered at all, but his character is unbearable at this point.
1: It's exhausting because like this match for like six minutes, it was exactly what it should be. Like Ada had his his couple hope spots he had a couple chops there and he played a great plucky underdog and I think that's something that kind of is lost that Ada was good as like this underdog I I, I mean he was effaced by the fact that he was like an underdog character but he just kind of was just like Ada there he was just like don't mess with Ada he's going to chop you in the in the chest a bunch chop you in the back and then it was just really well done and he played that role so well, and that's the thing that I'm so frustrated about not seeing the ACH match because I've been real interested to see how that would have turned out. But you just have his character; you have the character of John Davis that I would love to know what what like the rationale behind it was because it made no sense whatsoever. Because it completely, whenever it comes out there, it kills the crowd, and it really kind of took up until much later in the show for the crowd to kind of get back together.
2: Yeah, it's just uh, it's I just I don't I don't I don't get it, but. His in-ring is still really solid, and Ata as an underdog is how I've always preferred him and how I wish he'd wrestle even to this day.
1: Yeah, like, imagining 2020 Ata like, still having, like, the uh, the Yave the with him and still, like, working, like, because he is a smaller guy, like, like especially, like, people, like, with Benke or even now with how Big Shun Skywalker is, that's a lot more interesting to me than Ball Eita, so. But I feel like that's something that, that we've said a lot on the show <laughs> in various forms up uh, we had, a, we had an Ultimate Gate of video, and then we had the scene versus Papa Don and Tony Niece. It was Tony Niece with a surprise upset with a 450 splash on Conley after a whole lot of shenanigans, guys.
2: I've got a theory about this match, Mike, and I, I don't know how well it holds up. We'll see as we go along. I think Tony Niece stole Scott Reed's job in this match.
1: You know what? I buy that. I entirely buy that because he looked awesome in this. Like yeah.
2: It's I sorry to cut you off there, but Nice uh you know we saw him a year ago in this building the the third triple shot of 2011 and he was very young, he was just, you know, athletic and good looking but not a ton of substance there. And Nice came out tonight and just blew me away. And I've never been super high on Tony Nice. I actually I I think he is perfect for WWE because he's not a guy That can I don't know if Nice has a a four-and-a-half-star match in him, but on 205 Live, and I'm not knocking that brand, the last thing I watched and cared about in the WWE Universe was 205 Live in 2017 and 2018. Nice was always really good on that show, because he could just go out there and have a baseline-level good match, and it was all that he needed to do. So I love Nice and this undercard tag where, look, he's working with Papadon, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Personally, don't n- don't want to watch him wrestle. And he's in there with the scene, Caleb Conley, who's getting very good. And Scott Reed, who his thing was, he's the guy with muscles that can do flips. And Anthony Nice kinda ate his lunch here. Cause Anthony Nice is also a guy with muscles that can do flips. And I think the trajectory of Nice skyrockets after the show, whereas it plummets for Scott Reed. And we'll talk next week about Scott Reed's time in Japan. But I think this is a real definitive fork in the road moment for both guys.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, just like forecasting further for Nice, Nice next year in twenty thirteen will be in Japan. like he like Nice is ascendant here. And he becomes, like, such, like, a problem. member that he joins a student, he joins a unit. Like, he joins Monster Express, right? Whereas right as I was getting going. So, yeah, and it's something that, like, as... I, I guess because I'm not going to go out and watch some 2011-2012 NYWC, <laughs> but he put it together there, and that kind of was a highlight of this match that was just full of, sheen's, of the scene shenanigans. Marty Bell came out partway through, and then the finish was just... Conley putting Papa Don up top. Trina tried to distract Papa Don, but then Marty uh, took her out. Then, then Nice ran over, kicked Conley with like one of the, like like he had he was already getting like Nice's like he was hitting the 2018 2019 Nice moves. He did like the uh, the running turnbuckle kick and then hitting like a smooth as hell 450 and putting him away. But it, it, it's such like a real like parting of a ways moment. I feel like and for. A lot of people within like the dragon system or like the u.s side of the dragon system with this match because a lot of the scene kind of just stuff happening and then you have the uh and then you had everything with uh tony knees you had the marty bell post match uh the scene beat up marty bell i mean gabe being really just <laughs> at his peak gabe here and then power bombed her and then duf came out for the save
2: yeah, I, all I know is that Larry Dallas ended up without a shirt on in that post match, and I'm not sure how that happened. I just, I, I, don't think I was even on my phone. I just looked at the screen and focused for a no, second, no. and I was like, "Larry Dallas doesn't have a shirt on. I, why, why?"
1: No, no, no. It was something that happened that like his shirt's not. To be fair, Larry did come out with basically the shirt unbuttoned and tucked into his pants. So like it's something where it probably could have came off really easily. I would say.
2: It's not a knock on Larry Dallas. He looked all right. It was just, I don't know if it was needed for this angle.
1: (laughs) I I, I, like it was literally, you saw shirtless Larry Dallas. It's like, why do we have? I was just like, oh, shit. All right, I
2: guess we're doing this at match two. Thanks, Gabe.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Match three was ACH versus Eric Cannon. We talked about ACH now doing a lot of stuff in Ring of Honor. He was kind of towing the line where he wasn't signed with either. Eric Cannon beat him with a brain buster in six minutes and 43 seconds.
0: God,
2: this was fun. Like, I don't think this was a necessarily even like that good of a match, but
1: it was a three star match. It was a fun three star match.
2: Yeah, it wasn't a gentleman's three. It was a fun three and there is a difference. And I'm not going to spend 25 minutes wrestling uh, with myself wrestling with that statement like Joe Lanza would. I, I understand the difference. Eric Cannon. I've been critical of him in the past. I think, when he's not wrestling Sabu and he's not wrestling Masada, he's been a total pro in Dragon at USA. And ACH was good then; he's good now. ACH is the man. I think at times he's been critically underrated and just to a, to a ridiculous degree. And I really wish ACH would have stuck around in Dragon at USA because look, for a lot of for a lot of years we were like, I think this is the year that Ring of Honor is going to push ACH. I think it's going to happen this year, guys, and then it never happened. And I think in Dragon at USA. You know, it's hard to say if his career would have been better for it, but I think ACH in 2013 Drangate USA would have been really exciting.
1: Yeah, and I feel like that getting the chance to work with the Drangate USA guys and then getting also also chance to work with uh, the Drangate guys, I know that he started doing NOAA and then doing New Japan. He probably, I would say that given the state of the company in 2013-2014, Probably had a good shot of coming to Japan, if that was the case.
2: It would have been over like a motherfucker, because ACH, whenever he's in Japan, has been over to a tremendous, tremendous degree. I loved when ACH was in NOAA. I thought all of his tags were so much fun. And then in in New Japan, I mean, ACH in New Japan, when it's right He feels like he's on his own personal Fantastica Mania tour. Like, the crowd just...
0: They love
1: him.
2: ...gravitates towards him in a way where he is like a special attraction to them because he's so talented. He's so great. I I love him so much.
1: Oh, I went back a couple weeks ago, and it must have been something... It was something... I don't know exactly what tour it was, but... It was like this eight-man tag that was Lij versus the eight, uh, Super sixty-nine, and then I, I want to say it was Makabe and Tanahashi. But then uh, they all come out to Naito's music, and and ACH is dancing in the ring, and the crowd is so into it, and he tries to get Naito into it, and Naito attacks him. It was the most I've heard a crowd boo Tetsu Naito in the last three years. It was insane. Like he gets like how to get over it in like a way that like he said like his own Persic Fantasma Mania. It makes perfect sense here. And he was really good here too. Uh, There was one moment that I thought was kind of funny where someone did a water boy call doing, you can do it in 2012. And then Eric Cannon shut him down immediately. And I was like, <laughs> all right, Eric Cannon, I, I see you. I see you. I appreciate that. But yeah, like I, I it, another sliding door moment. What would have happened that he decided to stick with DGUSA over Ring of Honor? That would have been interesting.
2: I, I would have really liked to have seen ACH in a, in a position – coming up at the WrestleCon shows in 2013, the biggest audience in at USA history. I just would have liked to have seen what ACH would have done, because, you know, in, in the Ring of Honor universe that he was in, on their Hammerstein Ballroom show that weekend, he teams with Sedarius Thomas against QT Marshall and R.D. Evans on the Supercard of Honor show. And then on the television tapings, look, he challenges for the World TV title against Matt Taven. So he's a pushed commodity to some extent, but it's just... I just think he would have just killed it had he continued with Dragon Gate USA.
1: Absolutely. Then we went to Air Fox, who probably cut the best uh, backstage promo of his career, where he was very lackadaisical. He was sitting down in a Fox Motorsports hoodie, which popped me. And he (laughs) said, Me me
2: too, by the way. I'm glad you pointed that out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He said he's not worried at all about the Freedom Gate. He's just going to go out there and be A.R. Fox. I was like, all right, A.R. Fox, that kind of got over who you are. And I thought that that wasn't like awkward A.R. Fox or just like untrue A.R. Fox. This was A.R. Fox being A.R. Fox, and I thought like it worked.
2: I have promos to put over later on in the show, so unfortunately, A.R. Fox does not get any of my praise. But this was not a bad promo by any means.
1: Yeah, and then after that, we had Super Smash Brothers versus the... Still build as Chikarasaki gun case. Each time that they're still build as it I'm going to call them as build by Chikarasaki Gun <laughs> of Fire Ant and Jigsaw. They hit the fatality on Fireant in 14 minutes and 28 seconds. And I mean, this was a match that like oh, it could have been so much more. There was a lot of shenanigans that I, I mean I'm no I'm not no fun, but it just was something that was like I was wanting a little bit more out of this match and we were getting just a whole lot of jokey stuff from my tests.
2: I started the slow clap there. I'm like, I- I'm so glad you're on the same page. I was so let down by this. This was not what I was expecting or anticipating or wanting at all, especially given how good Fire em- and Jigsaw were against Pinky Sanchez and Eric Cannon the night before. And this is peak Super Smash Bros. Again, this is the hottest they have ever been in their entire career. Primarily off the back of their PWG work, but Gabe, like I said last week, Gabe made an honest effort and an active effort to feature them and to push them in his promotion, and he needs to be commended for that. But this, oh my god, this was like not fun at all. It was just like a bunch of middling comedy and then kind of like an okay finishing stretch. I went two and a half on this, I was so bummed out.
1: I went three and a quarter, but it was a, it was a very disappointing three and a quarter because when they got going, like, the stuff with Jigsaw and Stu was really awesome. And whenever, like, the two of them were in the ring, like, they were, like, putting on their shoes and they were getting down to work. And there was a lot of chemistry here, but it was just so much better in concept than in execution. It had minutes of being great, like, actually, like, excellent stuff. But then all of, like, the shenanigans. And, and in case, you know, Mike Spears loves fun. There's nothing more that I like more in my life. Then to sit down and see that, oh, it's Kobe Sambo Hall. What match are we getting matched to as a singles match? Oh, it's Sakura versus Don Fuji. You, you give me a DVD of that of them having those matches across the career, and I'm having a great time. But when this is supposed to be a match that's supposed to be like, all right, these two tag teams are ascended in the division, we're going to try to see who is going to be jockeying for in 2013 who will be getting open the United Gate title shots. And then you have a 14-minute match, and... A good five minutes of it is shtick. That's just such a bummer. So, like, this is, like, the most disappointing three and a quarter star match you can have. Like, it's like the idea of, of like, getting a bad pizza. Like, this was a bad pizza match.
2: Uh, my my goodness, Mike, you coined the gentleman's three and you just coined the bad pizza match. Good for you.
1: I, I, I We're going to see this. Like, I'm going to see this. I know that I've provided Joe Lanza a lot of content just reacting of just ideas I have. I'm going to try to see, let's see if we get the bad pizza match to happen, because this was a bad pizza match.
2: That's, that's exactly what it was, Mike. Well done. Well done.
1: You know, sometimes I have a way of words, and then some, sometimes it takes me three times to say the New York Wrestling Connection Sportatorium.
2: <laughs> you know who else has a way with words, Mike? That is a man by the name of Ricochet, who I thought cut an excellent backstage promo after the Super Smash Brothers match.
1: Yes, heel ricochet was the star of this show other than Akira tozawa being the star on every gg show heel ricochet owned he talked about how he broke giant Gargano's match back and was completely dismissive of a.r fox we are you know how we were talking about how we were seeing like the cocky vet ricochet now he's just being like an outright prick and it's tremendous
2: it was the character fully formed and fully realized, and I, I just, you know, he, I, like like Mike said, he ran down all of his opponents, and it was just a level of confidence from Ricochet that has always been there in the ring, but has never been there on the mic, and this was a really good promo. I was fired up after watching this.
1: Yeah, it's something that, like, we, we never really see cocky prick Ricochet that much, other than maybe PWG against Chuck Taylor during their, like, their title feud, but, like... This is something that, like, it kind of... Th- I think it's playing off of who he is a little bit that, that, that this is kind of tapping into that because it was just, like, showing a confidence here in promos that you never get out of face Ricochet promos ever to this day. Yeah, it was it was really solid. And then we had another really solid match. We had Rich Swan defeating Chuck Taylor in their feud, finishing it off with a standing 450 splash in 13 minutes and 2 seconds. I went 4 stars on this. I thought this was a really understated no dq match that played up the stakes played up hatred didn't just go straight out plunder but used plunder in like a really effective way and we've talked a lot about chuck taylor sneaky best uh, hardcore not deathmatch hardcore wrestler and we had this here in 2012 and i thought that this like exceeded like my expectations going in and i thought like, that rich swan and this was excellent as well and i thought that this was this was like a moment where the crowd started perking up because they went for this in this no dq match
2: Chuck Taylor, I think he's become so underrated at Plunder that he's now properly rated. I think enough people get the picture. Rich Swan, however, is an underrated Plunder guy. He's always good in matches like this. I think I'm a little bit lower on it than you. I thought it started strong. I thought it finished strong. I thought the middle portion left a little bit to be desired, but I'm at three and a half. I enjoyed this for what it was. My question to you, Mike, and I know this will sound hypocritical coming from me, someone who for most of 2011 complained about how little they were doing with Rich Swan. What do you think about the fact that Chuck Taylor lost both of the Ronin feuds?
1: Well, I think that this is probably something where Gabe did not know what to do with him dating back to the turn and dating back to what happened in Miami. I think that he just had no idea what to do with them. And, you know, they're kind of the Chuck Taylor Island where we talked about with Gentleman's Club, but that just didn't work. And they just kind of like Chuck Taylor do his own thing. I mean, this kind of fully solidified the fact that he, that Chuck Taylor at this point is a non-entity in this promotion. He just does Gentleman's Club hijinks.
2: Yeah, it's, like I said, it's a really good match, but it is, I'm just like trying to think from memory of what comes next for Chuck Taylor and nothing notable comes to mind. I mean, he's all but phased out. I me. Mean, I think he's still on every show from here on he's out. He's under a contract. Yeah, he's. A, he, that's a, a good point. Uh, Rich Swann, Sammy Callahan, and Chuck Taylor had all signed two-year contracts at this point. The WWE live contracts, meaning that you're exclusive to them with the exception of WWE, which if they want you... Uh, they will let you out of your contract. Chuck Taylor's on a two year contract, but it seems like Gabe is completely out of ideas for him at the start of those two years.
1: Yeah. And it's not like I could think of anything that he would immediately spring to and how to use him well with how that he just completely just booked him into irrelevance. And some of that might also be by the fact of what happened and no one really wanting him around, at least from the Japan side, you know, to be fair, like, I feel like there's some of it as well
2: oh, that's very true.
1: So it's a complicated thing. This match is kind of a complicated thing as well. There are some moments that are incredibly awkward and, you know, with stuff you could do in 2012, but you really can't do now. Like there was some things that it was with uh, Chuck and a belt whipping Rich Swan. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah. I think
2: it's uh, it's one of those things that I think in 2012, there's a good chance that no one in that arena is thinking as, as hard as they should have. Uh, with the exception of probably Rich Swan, uh, and yeah, in 2020, you just you don't get away with that visual.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's something that I mean, someone in the arena said you can't do that. That's racist. Mm, well, like, there, there, was there you
2: who's... go. Ah, <laughs> one one of those radicals in 2012.
1: <laughs> I I mean, you, you know, like they completely like pointed out what it was, and the finish year though, like after it kind of got back into it, the finish year was something really cool. So, uh. Chuck was about to put him through a chair with an awful waffle. He then well, what what off the top rope. Then he did like a, a no touch his no touch turnbuckle Rana into the chair. Did a bad chair shot and then doing a four fifty. Like this was a match that like if they had a much more coherent middle. Like there was like this awesome parts where like Chuck Taylor found a screwdriver and was like trying to claw at Rich Swan. That I feel like in a way that like that's about as hardcore as you can really get into DGUSA and then making it work, but he did it in a way that it was exceptional. Then you had, like, Colonel Angus come out partway through, just get clocked, and get his belt taken off, and then the belt shots we were talking, the-, the whipping that we were talking about earlier, and then it kind of came together. that there, If this had a more coherent middle section that wasn't as awkward and wasn't as, like, something that, like, y- they got away with in 2012 that you can get away with now, probably could have been, like, one of those sneaky 2012 match of the year contenders, but it just ended up being great in my mind
2: rich swan sneaky great plunder guy
1: yep and, and talking about sneaky uh great people at a certain thing next up we had shima versus sammy callahan there was a dg there was a wwn live video between this i mean it's getting to a point where i'll mark the uh the pay-per-views and the shows that they're playing on dvd but not the uh that they're advertising but that was in the cut but it was shima versus sammy callahan shima won in 14 minutes and 59 seconds with a meteora in case how do you think of Shima as a sneaky, good brawler? Because that's what this match was to me. And I thought of that that he tapped into it on not something you see a lot out of Shima where he wrestles with a lot of hatred, but Sammy Callahan either like aggravated him or like he was like, okay, we're going to go hard in this match. And I came away kind of impressed with that.
2: Yeah, Sammy Callahan aggravating a Japanese guy. That's never happened before. Uh You're completely right. Shima is a great brawler uh, on just the idea that he gets hatred across so well. I had seen this match many times. I love this match. I'm curious, Mike, uh, the arbitrary star rating, what do you have for this match?
1: Four and a quarter. I adored it.
2: Damn. All right, you're higher than... I had it right at four stars. It's just... It's so crisp. Everything they did, just perfectly executed. I i am so glad that this era of Sammy Callahan holds up really well, because, you know, I've, I've said before on the show, I was a really big fan of him prior to signing with WWE, and I love when Shima gets challenged like this, and I don't know if Shima likes it, but I love the fact that Callahan really, you know, stepped up to the plate, similar to what Callahan did with Naruki Doi. Like, if Doi is going to hit hard, Callahan is going to come back and hit hard, and Shima did the same thing, and Callahan returned in kind. and You know, there's one specific moment, uh, Shima's, you know, resting on the barricade and Callahan, he spit in his hand, which was disgusting, but then Callahan hits that running chop that he does. And he really lit into Shima. And I think the match changed tone at that point And Shima realized like, Oh, this is okay. This is what it's going to be. And yeah, I mean, I look, I would not want to be on the wrong side of Shima in a wrestling ring. I mean, that dude seems like he can kill you and just he and Callahan going back and forth. I just, I, I love this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ardo Cal, who we've been kind of like, Ar- Ardo o- Cal-, Cal being here instead of Lenny Leonard, you know, it's something that, I mean, he gave the college try over this weekend, and, you know, some things were good, some things were bad. He had probably one of my favorite lines just, like, randomly throwing out there, which embodies Sammy Callahan as a Southern Ohio man. You know how I'm fascinated by the Ohio River Valley case. Like, it's one of those things that I find incredibly interesting. I have a lot of family up there. But he has this peak so- Southern Ohio man saying, Bellefontaine, Ohio, where Simi Callahan is from, is one of the easiest places in North America to kill someone. <laughs> Great line. Did That just popped me enough for me to write it straight in my notes. I but. can't
2: believe Callahan didn't put that on a t-shirt. That is pretty funny.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, no, I just thought, like, that, that these guys really kind of worked well together in a way that, like, as you are saying, like, Shima, if you take him off, he's going to hit you back. And as we've seen a lot of times, especially in 2020, that's happened to him. But this, they, they, it kind of worked together in a flowing match that I ended up pretty much adoring, and it's something that I did. was not prepared for. For as contemptible of a human being as Sammy Callahan is, that I ended up really enjoying this match.
2: It, it wouldn't have happened for a number of reasons. Uh, partially Callahan's relationship with Big Japan. I also just don't think even if that wasn't on the table, I don't think we're getting a DUF tour of Japan in any universe. But I would have liked to have seen Callahan do one Gate tour. I think that would have been really interesting because I think he would have come away from it going, wow, he has really good chemistry with a lot of guys because he's demonstrated that in Gate USA. He always delivers against the Japanese talent.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And then we talked about the man of the hour earlier. Ricochet came out post-match. He's pissed off at Shima's insistence that to shake A.R. Fox's hand. He says the stay off his business. Shima's is sad in case I couldn't make out what Shima said on the microphone. Were you able to?
2: Oh, I was at the time, uh, but I don't remember what it was now. I don't have it down. Uh, I think he called, I think he said ricochet was inappropriate. I think that's what he said. Uh, I have one note about this one ricochet. Once again, very strong delivery. Ricochet was on when it came to talking tonight. My issue was something that I will project onto this match now or onto this promo rather because we know what happens in the future. And that is that Shima and Ricochet end up on opposite sides of one another in the Mercury Rising six-man tag in 2013. And I just would have liked for them to made, make the challenge, to set the wheels in motion to a, to a more obvious degree or something. Because this was a nice little angle by itself, but it felt like it was missing something and knowing what happens four months from now in April of 2013 when those guys are, uh, you know, against one another in that six-man tag, I would have liked to have seen at least, like, Shima's team versus Ricochet's team set coming out of Freedom Fight. I think it was a missed opportunity there.
1: Yeah, it's something where I would have loved to see them, like, make this into, like, an actual rivalry rather than kind of be on opposite sides because there is something there that after, like, the end of Fox and Ricochet's feud that you could definitely build on, you know? And they it does not seem to my recollection. We're getting to a point in 2013 where other than, like, major shows, I was not watching every single DG USA show that might have happened, and I've completely missed it, to be honest. But I don't think it did.
2: Um, I'm trying to think real quick off the top of my head. I mean, they do they do some stuff with it. I think it's, it, it's a little bit like the Johnny Gargano-Chuck Taylor feud, where I just think everything was so spaced out that it doesn't it doesn't really uh, feel like a big feud and yeah I mean you know Ricochet and Sheba they end up on opposite sides through the summer of 2013 so they, they kind of do something with it I know they have a Dreamgate match in 2013 that I've actually never seen before that I'd like to track down so it, it's there's an idea there but it's not really a fully exec, executed fully realized feud
1: so I did do a check case and they were not on the January shows. Neither of them.
2: Yeah, that that I know. Because it's the first time that Shima's not there, and the Japanese town on the January shows is a little weird. I did not realize Ricochet was not on those shows as well.
1: Well, I mean, the time of the month, that would have been when things really started going in in Dragon Gate in 2013.
2: Yeah, because it's not... Early January where they might be on a break. It's it's late January, they're heading into Truth Gate at that point, and then Champion Gate. I guess they were running Champion Gate in June at that point, but still there was stuff going on in Japan. shima had to be there, all right.
1: Right, right. And then backstage went to Tozawa. tozawa says he's gonna win. Then he spoke Japanese for a bit and told us that Matt Blinky meant means bullshit. Akira Tozawa. Fantastic. He's so good. Like so good. He's (laughs) he's so good. And then we get into Samurai Del Sol and El Generico versus Marahi Asapa, Rio Jimmy Saito, and Gigi Horiguchi H A Jimmy. It was Samurai getting the uh win over Horiguchi with his springboard poison rana and a pretty fun match. It went fifteen minutes and fifteen seconds. I went three and a half stars. I thought this was fun. But I mean it's also something where like we're dealing with like El Generico who's just kind of there right now. I mean he's in this thing. I like we've talked about like El Generico comes back to Ring of Honor by the end of 2012. And you have Samurai Del Sol, who's still there. And then Saito, who we've talked about. We don't think Rio Saito necessarily completely worked in the United States. And then, you know, Kinki Horiguchi, someone who I would have... If you, if we get to a point, I think this would be fun in our wrap show where we pick up who would be the six to seven Japanese wrestlers we'd bring over for each show. I think I'm bringing over Kinki Horiguchi a whole lot.
2: Oh, God, yeah. Absolutely. I want four stars on this, and it's something we'll talk about more next set of shows, that SoCal triple shot, where, you know, this is the last time we see Generico, because Generico is WWE bound in about a month and a half after this show, so this is the last time we see him, it's the last time we see Horiguchi, and I think that's a real shame, because, one, their chemistry is excellent, Two they both just connect with audiences in such a universal way, but what impressed me here is what has impressed me all weekend and that is samurai del sol i I get it like I know why Gabe was in love with this guy, why del Sol was the highest paid member of the roster, why he was getting flown out to shows. I get it because i he's unbelievable, and that springboard poison Rana is a death defying move that when he hits, it it looks like it kills Genki Horiguchi in this finishing stretch, and in the best, uh, to coin a phrase, romantic way possible.
1: <laughs> it, it's
2: the, What this match is, and, and I'm higher on this because I feel this way a lot with Genki Horiguchi. I think I've always been a little bit higher on him than even most of the Dragon Gate Hardcores because when Horiguchi gets going and when he's in a match like this, it's just baseline great. Like... I just I take the the sum of this match. And I'm like, yeah, that was great. Like what they did, what Horaguchi just did. Most wrestlers can't do. He's in the one percentile of talent in the wrestling world, and he's doing it against El Generico and a young, motivated Samurai Del Sol. That is a winning formula every single time. And I really wish. I know I said this last week. I really wish Del Sol would have gone to Japan. I want to know what that looks like.
1: And it's something that he was able to kind of like put this together in a match where Horiguchi like yeah Horiguchi is probably like we've talked about the uh the sneaky great thing that of Horiguchi just like just being solid and how Susumu Yokosuka is like if you look across like the breadth of the uh, dragon system he is the guy who is like Probably one of the top people if you want to talk about most outstanding, just because you put him in a ring, you put him in right circumstance, Susumi Yokosuka is going to put out there, and Geeky did it as well. Uh, one crazy spot in this match you did not mention was the monkey flip 450 splash that Samurai Del Sol hits. It is insane. Just absolutely nuts. They
2: did it against Shima and AR Fox in Michigan, and it blew my mind then, and it blows my mind now. It's, you know, just not getting a prolonged Del Sol Generico tag team is such a bummer. Forget the fact that we never get Gargano versus Generico, which I I will say, I understand Gabe's reasoning for doing the four-way main event, but I think by this point, it was pretty known that Generico was signing at some point just do Gargano versus Generico now. Just get it out of the way and, and be damn with your storytelling. I really wish that match would have happened. I think it would have been a really interesting test for Gargano at the time. But the, the tag team between Generico and Del Sol, it's just, it's, they're unreal. It's such a fun team, and I wish we got more of them.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. it's something that, like, you, like, see this happen, and you're like, okay. I was very tough on Samurai Del Sol and very questioning. Like, I get it. Like, since... Pretty much ever since that one match against Masato Yoshino, he's brought it out and he's starting to really look like the guy that he, that, that Gabe saw and was trying to get him for so long and finally got him on these shows here. And, you know, it's it, it it's something that, like, it, even though the tag team was great, you had El Generico for such a short period of time. You could have used it to make more people than just be in a tag team with, uh, with, uh, Cimarron del Sol and then having a match against Akira Tozawa, you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And then we went backstage. Another great Southern Ohio man moment. Sam McCallahan is has a Monster can as his spitter. In case I know you're not much of a energy drink person, but there is a size of Monster that is larger than normal that has like a twist off can because it's not meant for you to drink it all at once. That I've known a lot of guys that like those Monster cans for spitters because you you have like a rim and spit into it. And he talked to he says he's calm and collected. He's not mad against losing about losing against shima he's grown he says that he's the scariest dog in the fight and he will continue until he will finally get the dragon gate championship and you know this weekend has been very interesting for sammy callahan especially with now pinky sanchez is out of the company eric cannon's kind of adrift but they have a gabe has a very distinct path that he wanted to do with sammy callahan here and it definitely felt pretty focused where some DUF stuff with Sammy in the past kind of felt very rambling.
2: I like this promo a lot. I, again, this this era of Sammy is just very, very good. I understand why he gets signed in June of 2013. You know, it's coming up because he is... The the size was his biggest issue, but it's really... I know this is crazy to say, but I feel like not being able to get anything out of Sammy Callahan, and I don't know the entire story about what happened with him and NXT, but you just look at their roster now of current day NXT, and it's all guys that look like Tony Nese. Like it's just they are the athletic, work rate promotion. Now their house style limits them from for the most part having good matches. But to not be able to use Callahan just as a promo seems like a huge indictment of the creative process. 2000 specifically, 2013, 2014 Callahan. Once he returns to the Indies it's real hit or miss. Now, when he hits, it's still excellent, but they're few and far between. But it's, it's shocking that WWE didn't figure him out.
1: I, I mean, it, when you, like, look at how that process and how many people that they did not fall figure out in peak NXT, it kind of makes a little bit more sense, but it does seem like there was a way to do it with him, and then putting him in, like, in a weird hacker gimmick was not that.
2: Well, and you have to remember, I mean, Callahan's there, and it's not like... There's just this uh, cavalcade of talent coming in. Callahan is the first performance in our class with with samurai Del Sol. So it's not like Callahan gets signed and then you've got, you know, Keith Lee, Donovan Dijack, Kyler Riley, Adam Cole coming in behind him. He was the indie guy when he was signed. It was him and Del Sol, and you know, Del Sol was an easier transition into the WWE version of a luchador character, and there was only one template for that, and Del Sol fit it well. It's just, you know, if if there was ever a time, because it's not like creative was bad at NXT at the time, and I'm still watching the promotion at this point and enjoying it for the most part, but to not be able to use him, I think has always just been a little strange, and I would like to know more about what happened, and I'm sure I can dip into some DMs and figure out a better story there, but it just seems like on the surface, Callahan should have worked out in WWE because this DGUSA promo was very, very good.
1: Right, and then we went into the main event. It's a four-way elimination match. Johnny Gargano versus Akira Tozawa versus Ricochet versus A.R. Fox. Going through the uh, the falls here, it was Johnny Gargano retaining his title in 30 minutes and 27 seconds. The first fall was Ricochet submitting A.R. Fox to a Texas Clover Relief. Second fall was Akira Tozawa pinning Ricochet with a deadlift German suplex after a stone donut. And then the deciding fall, uh, Johnny Gargano submitted a Tozawa with a Gargano escape.
2: What do you think about the finish, Mike?
1: This was the time.
2: Yeah, this was, wasn't
1: it? This, so much was the time. We've talked about this more and more as we've gone along. And uh, I guess the theme of this episode case is really sliding doors, isn't it? Because I'm wondering what 2013 would have looked like, what WrestleMania would have worked, looked like, like, if you would have had Akira Tozawa versus Shingo Takagi in the main event there.
2: Well, they do it the the second, or the I guess the third night, the second Dragon Gate USA show. So you could still reasonably do Gargano. Well, you could have kept the booking of WrestleMania weekend the same, because it's Tozawa versus Ricochet, and it's Gargano versus Shingo on night one, and you could have done that, and then on night two... You could do Tozawa versus Shingo and Gargano and Ricochet and the six-man tanks and nothing changes. You're
1: right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like a crazy car change there. You could have made that happen. And that would have been such an interesting thing because arguably like, yes, it's the most, uh, it's the biggest weekend. in in the DG USA history is the Secaucus, New Jersey WrestleMania 2013 weekend, but it would have made so much sense. And with how the crowd was, other than uh, really, other than maybe the, the moments, the slight moments where the crowd was getting into it before this match, no one was as over as Akira Tozawa here. He Everything he did there connected. He works in this company as like a weird tweener that does very heelish things based cheer from it. Like, I have a theory about the Young Bucks. So the Young Bucks are innately your heels, but they're heels that people like, so they cheer him. That's how Akira Tozawa is. He's been the most over person in the promotion the entire time since he was introduced in 2010 and the uh, Canadian weekend. And they, I would love to know why Akira Tozawa never opened the free gate champion because it just seems like such a no brainer in retrospective, especially coming out of this match. Other than Gabe now finally having an American he can book on on all the shows, you could have had Akira Tozawa here and. I think that at a time where the indies were really in a bad place, I imagine the houses would have been a lot better if Akira Tozawa in title matches.
2: The other thing is, in relation to this being Tozawa's time, they had an out because John Davis attacks Gargano before the match starts, and you can always, always go back to that and say, like, yeah, you know... Tozawa won, and he is the champion, but Gargano was attacked by John Davis, and you still... I don't think the booking has to change at all from this show through the fourth anniversary show, where they end up doing Gargano versus Tozawa again, because you can still do Gargano versus Davis in a no-rope match, and you just make that non-title, and then, like we talked about, WrestleMania weekend is still the same. It's... If they just they had an out, and there's one specific spot that it doesn't really relate to Tozawa, but I want to be sure to mention it really early on in the match where Gargano, who went to the back after John Davis beat him up, he comes back out, and Ricochet just starts pounding on Ricochet, hits all these moves, all these moves, and it looks like he's going to pin him. Ricochet hits a shooting star press, one, two, and then AR Fox breaks up the pin. And it's an elimination match, but the fact that he broke up Ricochet's pen to deny him that satisfaction, it protected Gargano, and it added to that AR Fox-Ricochet feud, which, for you know, realistically is still going on at this point, because they're still going to be against one another quite a bit throughout 2013. And then from there, you know, the finishing stretch with, Tar- with Tozawa and Gargano, it's just... It's Tozawa and Gargano, and it's you know in particular it's Akira Tozawa who ended up breaking Johnny Gargano's nose in this match. Props to Gargano for not missing a beat, but that finishing stretch was phenomenal. And there's a reason that, Mike, I I, I don't know if you know this, but in 2012, it was the first year that our website, Voices of Wrestling, did a match of the year poll. They did a top 10. Now we're doing, what, like a top 170? They did a top 10 in 2000. Ridiculous, just ridiculous. (laughs) But it's the best thing we do. I'm glad we do it every year. I love it. But in in 2012, there were four voters. They did a top 10. And number four was this match. And I will say now, Rich Kreich of Voices of Wrestling had to say, One of the best four-ways I have ever seen. Each guy did something breathtaking and the flow of the match was the best I've seen for a multi-man match. There wasn't the usual lull where it seemed like guys were waiting for their turn. With that said, I did not like Gargano winning under those odds. Had too much of a Super Cena Hogan feel to him, but that didn't kill it an elite match for 2012. Rich Creech, Voice of Wrestling, fourth place in the 2012 Match of the Year poll.
1: Yeah, and it's something that it just operated on a certain way that, you you know, Ricochet coming in here, and we, we talked about Gargano and Tozawa, Ricochet's heel work against AR Fox, leading up to the Air Fox elimination was excellent. Just dismantling this guy's knee, just like tossing him onto a ladder, hitting him with a chair <laughs> into the ladder, and then putting him in a Texas cloverleaf, which i mean ricochet that's like one of the few times in his career i remember him actually using a submission finisher but the reason why it worked is then he proceeded to like just lay in punches to the injured knee the entire time until air fox just had to tap or else his knee would go out which is excellent storytelling so everyone really did their part here there's a just absolutely insane doomsday suicida in this and it just was one of those things where they told like looking at the show and before getting into this like the show and like my memory of this match I was like oh wait this match is 30 minutes long that's going to be something and then sitting down and watched it it was one like the fastest 30 minute like epic matches that I've seen just cuz like so many things started happening and it was just like consistent cuz there was not like your turn my turn it was distinct stories being told here and the glue of it was Akira Tozawa. I mean he was the guy that should have been the fourth to open the, the Freedom Gate champion
2: Four and a half stars from May.
1: Four and a half as well. Like, this is one of the matches that next week we'll do our top 10 of the 2012s. And it just was like a really, really just like a match that, like, I I still don't think Johnny Gargano is necessarily the right champion. And I don't think it's going to happen until he turns heel. But I think that this was like the start of that.
2: Next week will be an interesting show. Obviously, the first show of 2013. Mike and I will have our top 10 matches of 2012. I will also be reading the Gabe Sapolsky State of the Union Address from the end of 2012. But before we get to that, we have a Johnny Gargano go-home promo. Mike, did you have any thoughts there?
1: I mean, like, the big thing is that Gargano tried to offer hands to Zao, and he kicked it, and Zao kicked it away, and just was like the standard ace, thank you for coming promo.
2: I, I will say... Gargano sucks me in every time he does one of those he was uh, he was annoyingly good at those did you enjoy the show promos? so that is how Dranget USA ends in 2012 we have the final thing we'll talk about real quick Evolve 18 on December 8th, 2012 this was the final show from the WWE Universe in 2012. On commentary for the show, Arda Ocal, Johnny Gargano, and Colt Cabana, who did not wrestle but was uh, was there to do commentary. This show was from the Flyer Skate Zone in Voorhees, New Jersey. Mike, I will run down the results real quick because this is a show that I have not seen and I don't know a ton about other than that there were four singles matches to determine a later four-way freestyle. Those matches were A.R. Fox going over on Tony Nese. Masada beating Papadon. That happened. And to make matters worse, Larry Dallas and Papadon defeat Marty Bell in a two-on-one handicap match. After that, Rich Swan defeats Jigsaw and John Davis defeats Chuck Taylor. El Generico and Samurai Del Sol defeated the Super Smash Brothers. That aforementioned four-way freestyle saw Rich Swan beat Fox, Davis, and Masada in six minutes. In the main event, a match I would, I would like to hunt down, because it is one I, I have not seen, but it got rave reviews from what I read online. Open the Freedom Gate title match, Johnny Gargano defeats Sammy Callahan by a referee decision in 25 minutes. So that is how Evolve closes the year. Mike, have you ever seen this show?
1: No, it didn't. I remember, like, the referee's decision being something. I remember reading about it and being like, okay, that was kind of smart. So... You know, I mean, like this is the the, the show that Arda constantly was saying it's on a double header, CCW Cage of Death. So again, how WWE wins kind of devolved over the time.
2: Yes, I, uh, I let me let me see quickly. I know we're going long, but I, I am curious. Just it is Cage of Death. It is the craziest show of the year, and I would like to pull pull up that Cage of Death fourteen card. Uh, that same night, let me look at the show real quick, see if there's anything fun. Rich Swan defeated Shane Strickland. Uh, Greg excellent and Mama excellent defeated Drew Gulak and Kimberly. I can go ahead and give that match a dud, even though I've never seen it. Adam Cole defeated Sammy Callahan. Ar Fox defeated Robert Anthony in 25 minutes. Uh, Masada defeats Drake Younger for the CZW World Heavyweight Title. It's we'll be talking about Drake Younger in the next three shows. It'll be weird to talk about, but I have a real soft spot for 2012 specifically, 2012 specifically, Drake Younger, in your Cage of Death match was Matt Tremont versus DJ Hyde in 22 minutes. So not a show that looks good at all. This is a very bad-looking Cage of Death.
1: Oh, yeah, this is just CZW. You, you, you know what I mean? And you like, look at like the people on this show, and... With, with some judicious changes, you could probably have made, like, a competent show here. <laughs>
2: Maybe. I don't know. That's a, that's a pretty rough talent uh, talent lineup. Well, Mike, are you ready to preview what's coming next week? Open the Golden Gate 2013.
1: Yeah, let's get into it.
2: All right. So, like I said, Mike and I will have a top ten. Gabe Sapolsky, State of the Union address. And open the Golden Gate 2013 from Lakeview Junior High School in Santa Maria, California. This show has Samurai Del Sol versus Ata. Brian Cage versus Ray Rosas. An evolved three way elimination match with John Davis, Chuck Taylor, and AR Fox. Johnny Gargano and Rich Swan versus the Jimmies of Jimmy Susumu and Rio Saito. Julian Cash versus Kevin Devine in a local match. The Young Bucks return to the promotion, and we get the Young Bucks versus the DUF of Eric Cannon and Sammy Callahan. In your main event, Mike Spears, Akira Tozawa versus John Morrison.
1: Are you to tell me that John Morrison has come and has opened the forbidden gate?
2: He has opened the golden gate, my friend.
1: Ho oh, ho! Yeah. Well, this is a show that, uh, again, I get, I got kind of picky and choosy towards the end of DGUSA, and even though my main man character was the main event. The prospects of him facing 2013, John Morrison, did not entice me enough to watch this show. So, I'll be watching this for the first time with you next week.
2: It is quite the show. I've seen it before, and I am... Oh, you have? Yes. I I had the show on DVD, This and Revolt 2013, coming the week afterwards. I have seen these shows before. I am very curious to see them again.
1: (laughs) I am looking forward to watch them as well. So, that's going to do it for this episode of Open the VoiceGate Rewind and Rewatch. There are now, as I pull up the page there are now only 13 more Dragon Gate USA events. We're, we're getting, we're, we're almost into single fingers, figures of DGUSA. And that's going to be it for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at Open OpenVoiceGate. You can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. You can follow KS at underscore in your case. KS, anything else you want to say before we get out of here?
2: No, thank you for listening. This was a really fun episode.
1: Yeah, this, this episode was a blast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with you next week as we enter 2013 in Dragon Gate USA. Take care.